1: Berry Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, my name is Rachel Stewart. I'm a host for the New Book Network for the channel Sex, Sex Work, and Sexualities. And today I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Raven Bowen about her book Work, Money, and Duality. Raven, it's awesome to have you here. So. Can you tell us who you are, Raven? What is your academic background and what are you currently doing?
1: Sure. Um, So I've been around for the block for a while, probably close to three decades working on um, sex worker rights stuff, community development in Canada and in the UK. Um, I've done uh, a BA in Sociology, an MA in Criminology at Simon Fraser University, and then I came to the UK to do a PhD at Durham, but I ended up finishing at York (laughs) in Sociology, Um, and right now I am the CEO of National Ugly Monks, which is a UK-wide charity that provides support to, to people in adult industries who experience harm. And we run a national reporting and alerting mechanism and checker tools and those kinds of things to make sure that those populations are safe.
0: Okay, and for the listeners, um, we'll pop in a link to the National Ugly Mugs in, um, in the blurb that accompanies this. So, um, I've just finished reading your book. It was awesome, I really enjoyed it. A very important. Book. Um, the introduction is really important because you tell us at length about what this book is not. <laughs> can you tell the listeners what the book is yeah
1: and that was really important to open it that way because you know we see sometimes when research and other media and other you know entities draw attention to populations within sex industries sometimes that has really um uh like dangerous effects and negative effects on those populations so I wanted to make sure that by talking about people who live dual lives and inserting their experiences into our discourse that it's not an opportunity for a witch hunt. It's I not see. an opportunity to, you know, look for individuals who you might think are doing something else on the side and, and try to investigate their lives. It's not, it's, not, it's not a population that I'm putting forward in the ways that I am um, in order to be targets of some uh, gays that... You know, will affect their life chances and their abilities to survive.
0: Okay, so we've we've explored what the book isn't. What is the book? <laughs> what is the book doing?
1: Sure, it's doing a, a, multiple things, which is why it was such a challenge to write. Um, the book is expanding how people may people who are outside of industries may think of the sex industry and who trades sex. So it sort of like expands who who people think sex workers are. It speaks back into some of the research that defines sex work involvement and and exiting as binary. Um, It talks about uh, issues that of the practicality of living a dual life, the ins and outs of that, why people do it and links that back in with the larger structure within our precarious labor market um, and precarity within sex industries as as well. And it really, it it is that sort of the mirror of telling the story of this group of workers for us to look at our, what kind of capitalist society we've co-constructed, what kind of capitalism we're practicing such that individuals like these are among the most hidden populations of sex workers.
0: Okay, okay. So, again, I'm sort of like sort of back to the introduction because I spent ages going over the introduction because I, I kept kind of oh. grazing over it. It was really interesting to read. So, your book positions itself as opposed to radical, carceral, and prohibitionist perspectives on sex workers. On sex work, sorry. What does that mean? I mean, I know what that is, but for the listeners, what does that mean?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, It is about people who believe that sex industry is harmful for everyone all the time. And they, you know, that's an inaccurate depiction of what's going on here. Um, Like as in any other form of work, sex workers, people experience exploitation, people move in and out, there's harms that happen. So that's no different than in industries. um, But approaches that you know ser- seem to present sex workers as a population in need of rescue um for this population in particular they sort of stand in the face of that because what are they going to be rescued to, to? what employment are they going to be rescued to because they're already in square jobs like they're already working across sectors in square jobs so they can't be rescued right um, and you know even for the populations who i think some feminists focus on rescuing. We have no investment in how that rescue is going to happen. We haven't even asked people if they want to, you know, to leave and what that looks like, or if they want to blend sex work with sperm. We haven't asked the questions of the population. And I think that a lot of responses to, um, sex working and sex industries are always the enforcement ones or always, you know, more police, more, you know, algorithms, more data scraping, more this, more that. And it's like that. If, If we're about increasing safety and workers' rights across sectors, then criminalizing and and painting everyone as a victim is not a way to achieve that.
0: No, I and I totally I totally agree with that and I totally get that because there's a there's a perception that somehow if you're engaged in, in sex work that you're apart from the mainstream. And what this book is highlighting, what became really apparent through the book, is that actually you're talking about sex workers, and I would argue the majority of sex workers who are actually engaged in mainstream like employment. But who, who, you know, if we listen to sort of radical feminism, would say are so estranged from mainstream living that they need to be rescued and put back into mainstream. But actually, this said, actually no. They are already mainstream. They're already
1: here. not working. I heard an academic talking about, um, you know, the Bristol's initiative to potentially shut down the sexual entertainment venues. And uh, the individual said that we'll shut down the venues and open coffee shops and places where sex workers can work. And it was just like, those dancers probably already have jobs in coffee shops and other places, right? Like, it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't, yeah we have to we have to stop romanticizing what square work is for people um because you know as as you as we hear in the literature and as we hear from sex workers a lot of them move out of exploitive square jobs into sex industries so you know we we can't romanticize that as a solution or a destination um i think the focus needs to be on dealing with People who are experiencing poverty and may go through those situations where they're unable to refuse work, which happens across the industry. And that's what we tend to term survival sex. And then for people who want to professionalize their sex work, we have to support them in regulating their own industry. Simple, you know, that'll unemploy Probably a lot of the public sector, but it's you know, if we're about safety in the industry, let's not create these make-work projects and criminalize legal work. Let's make sure that workers are safe and they have options to choose the amount of sex work involvement that they're comfortable with, from zero to hundred percent,
0: right? And I mean, it automatically becomes like an it's implicit critique of that kind of whole rescue industry debate, you know. I've, you know, I've said it's worked in the past. I don't need to be rescued. You know, I need to, I need to change to the neoliberal capitalist system.
1: You know, I don't need to be rescued. Yeah, people want to, people want to be rescued from their square jobs where they're making, you know, low pay <laughs> and the time investment versus that money-time ratio. Like, it's not making sense. They're putting so much time and energy into their jobs and they're, yeah. you know, at the end of the week, they make 200 quid, which, you know, it, it, it's like, how is that a quality, dignified, work experience
0: exactly I was far more exploited in the university system as a as a as a postgrad than I've ever been (laughs) selling sex -sex. that's a
1: pyramid scheme (laughs) 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 or yeah that's definitely a multi-level marketing no that that's that it's very I guess scholarship is is so much built on the the free labor of novices and neophytes and you know but lots of industries are that way Um, Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't be surprised that sex industries mirror the se- kinds of exploitations and opportunities that existed in mainstream society.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You've got to keep your street smarts wherever you are. You've got to be street smart if you're hustling. You definitely have to be street smart when you're in a university. So just yeah. telling people. <laughs> But anyway, tell us about duality in the context of this book.
1: Sure. So, duality is, uh, you know, a a term that I I, I've applied to this kind of um, to people who blend sex work and square jobs because um, there wasn't language around it really. Like sex workers would say about they have their side hustle or they have their square job on the side or whatever, but there wasn't a really a term that was um, not negative negatively connotated that, that talked about you know blending work arrangements and so duality exists um, beyond how I've theorized it. it it's existed for generations and, and there are scholars who have touched on it but haven't done a really deep dive into the practices of people who engage in, in sex work and in duality. So that's what I wanted to do is one, investigate this as a phenomenon not as a new novel one, because, you know, this has been something that, that workers have done around the world, um, probably for time immemorial, um, but investigate it in the ways that sex workers in the UK are are practicing it, and how they're, you know, managing the information, the audiences, how they're able to keep their work, some of their work secret from different populations, and what the costs of that are and what they have to say about work in general and about the challenges um, in the kind of marketplaces that we've created, because the people in this sample are individuals who, you know, they're, they're skilled, they're educated. They would normally have a lot of choice in terms of the work they would do. Um, The majority of the population are white, majority are female. And, um, they find themselves with really fragmented work opportunities and so they had to fill the gaps by engaging in sex work um, and supplementing income that way in order for them to have any sense of stability and any opportunity to to build a life because this is beyond subsistence right it's beyond eking out one bread and butter it's you know some people aspire to more than that um, in their lives and they thought that getting an education and getting into the mainstream society would afford that, but it doesn't. Um, And we've made it so
0: yeah I mean and also as well this book really for me it kind of built on some existing literature one of which was really obvious so like you know sort of Bernstein intimately yours you know sort of like you know white sort of middle class women in uh, the the uh, American um, west coast who who couldn't actually you know get the stuff that they needed you know with their qualifications so professionalized an area of sex work but it also made me think of um, um, a a sort of a sociologist from the 1970s who talks about the economics of make, of makeshift and that sex work has been a sort of like a go to for for marginal, well not even marginalised women but women in experiencing precarity for generations. Yes, absolutely. One of the toolbox and actually what we're experiencing here is a kind of you know that sort of return to business as usual. Like so, the welfare state, that kind of um, sort of Fordist Keynesian thing, was the exception. And now we're going back to business as usual, when actually you need to have like all these different sort of things ticking over just to be able to like, you know, to be able to to get to where you're going. And this book, I believe, really feeds into that. It kind of like says, you know what, we're going back to what we always have been, which is people do different things.
1: Yeah. And that is like the dual labor market as well. Like that idea that, you know, some populations had open-ended contracts and severance pay and you know family wages and they could you know support their families have a bank account and take the kids on holidays all at the same time and then there were these populations in other areas of the dual of the labor market that always had to blend multiple informal yeah maybe sometimes criminal work (laughs) you know like i think of people even in my own family who work their mainstream job go home eat dinner and then go back out to their evening part-time shift. My brother does that. Like, yeah. you know, my, my younger brother, he does that. I think he has three jobs right now because he's, you know, buying a house in Toronto. So that's what he's doing. And so there's, I think there's lots of population who side hustling is not new to. And 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 side hustling includes legal work, such as sex industry work for some populations. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: And I mean, I think that's really important to, to, to think about as well, like for some for some populations. And
1: I think it's Fantoni
0: talks about this and she talks about, you know, precarity has been, a, you know, it's been standard for people for, forever. But when it starts to affect sort of like white middle class men, all of a sudden it becomes an issue and becomes talked about. But there's there's more than that, isn't it? Like my experience, you know, I come from sort of like a traveler background and, you know, I've talked about that quite a lot, but we have a job. Because it distracts the job is, is a shield. Oh, yeah. The, jo- the job is sort of like is an explanation of what it is that you're doing. You've never earned enough money to live on that job, but it's yeah. it's something you can hold up to, to kind of keep, you know, prying eyes away.
1: Um, Off-street workers who I've known over the years, that say, and especially folks who are parents, they would always keep a square job. You need the paper trail. You need access to, you know, assistance. You need access to a bank card. You need to be able to make a good account of yourself um, but they're working in jobs that there's no way <laughs> there's no way they could support a family if, if that's all they did no. absolutely not
0: no you've got you know so sort of you've, you've got to have sort of like you've got you know it you need you need the job to kind of make sure that you can actually be mainstream so you yeah. need to take on this like poorly paid job to distract you from the highly paid jobs that you're doing in order to sort of make sure that you know you can buy your house you can do yeah. the things that you want to do
1: is. Yeah, And the great thing with duality is that it doesn't it supports it doesn't force people to over rely on one job or the other. Yeah. So that, you know, they can always back away, take less shifts or take more shifts or whatever it, 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 it means for them. That That's why I use that embedded eternity symbol about that equilibrium. It is that balance and it is flowing between, you know, practices of, you know, maybe you're, you're doing a bit more square jaw square work and a little bit of sex work on the side or maybe sometimes it's more equal time or maybe you're doing more sex work than square work at times but you know it flows like it's definitely not a static thing you know the the great thing about these folks one they're skilled entrepreneurial and they're go-getters so if there's opportunities for work they'll go after those opportunities for work and so it's sort of um they're precarious because sex work is stigmatized Right And so for them, it's yeah, they would absolutely lose everything. They would lose standing in both realms. They could lose both jobs, they'd lose they'd lose their future. they could lose family, personal relationships and all of that. So that's what makes it precarious. But these folks are, you know in, in a good economy, they're doing pretty well. So they're able to, you know, draw in, on sex industry work and square work for the emergencies that come up for them, they're able to save money to get on the property ladder. And then they're able to do more long term, you know, lifestyle, (laughs) social advancement, class advancement, social mobility stuff with doing sex industry work or square work on the side.
0: And, I, and you, you know what? I'm gonna give another shout out to Belosa. Like Brooke Belosa, if you're <laughs> listening to this, I demand coffee from you because I've mentioned you so much recently. But, but she she describes something really interesting. She calls she calls it whole myopia. She says it's an affliction that only affects like feminist movements in the state that somehow like sex work is placed outside the capitalist system. Like, that- somehow sex workers do not have to adhere to the same sort of like, you know, game plan that everyone else and
1: Yeah, and I think Walkowicz, Judy Walkowicz talks about that and I believe it's, oh God, she's gonna probably have to kill me for this, but it is the outlaw, no, the outcasting there's a paper there's a book about the outcasting of sex workers from the working class yeah I yeah, butchered yeah. that completely um but, yeah but no no, no, no I it's think like... it's
0: the prostitution in Victorian Britain when they're basically these 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 uh sort of working class women that were quite often quite significant in their communities as yeah, an ostracized from their communities
1: yeah you know absolutely and the thing too is is that you know these folks contribute to homes and economies and you know they invest in their families and loved ones so that you know they they accumulate wealth so that, that can be carried on there's yeah. one person in the book her name's joy and she had to make i think it was twenty thousand pounds in nine weeks or something like that so she hustled in her mainstream job and in sex industry to get that money for her child's tuition so that her child could go through school and leave without debt. She ended, you know, this sort of poverty or debt bondage in her family for a generation. Can you imagine leaving leaving the PhD, leaving school without debt? Like, I, I don't know what that would be like myself. Um, but she wanted to make sure that her her child wouldn't be saddled with the burden of debt slavery on top of wage slavery, because any sort of job that individuals get right out of school you know, they're, they're making, they're not making great money. And then, I mean- yeah.
0: And I, I think that's another important thing about the the debates that this book provokes, because we tend to focus debates around sex work starting in the 1860s. Like how, I don't know how many literature reviews I've read that start with the the, the Contagious Diseases Act. Like sex yeah. work wasn't going on before that. Actually, sex work <laughs> was going on before before industrialization, people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually it's part, part of it. It's part yeah. of industrialization. <laughs> and actually, you know, there are parts of London like that were built. By sex working women. Uh, There's a there's a terrace in Haverstock Hill in Northwest London, extremely expensive, like properties now. It was built by a sex worker. Yeah. And you know, it's like when you look at the history of like sort of areas like if you live in London, like Maiderfell, fell was where mistresses of rich men in St. John's Wood would live. Yeah. This has been, this is a thing. This has happened in the past. Uh, But what's happened is we've had this kind of like this this kind of just this crushing of the narrative you know, since 18 Yeah, sex
1: workers are part of, uh, like, nation building, they're part of, you know, like, you know, when you think about when Europeans came, because I was was born in the UK, but I grew up in Canada, so a lot of my um, politicization and experience of the UK comes from being, living in Canada, and seeing what's happened there, and where we look at, you know, in Vancouver, in particular, gassy jacks, and all of these, like, you know pubs and and brothels and you know uh supper clubs where who do you think worked <laughs> like in these places or um uh what's her name there's a she'll come to pausing you. because uh <laughs> barbara brantz wrote a, a book co-wrote a book state of sex and there they talk about you know the surface jobs in the mines and then how women were working there but they were also working in brothels and they're like it is it is being enterprising being resourceful and getting the resources that you need to support your family in whatever context is being presented to you right and so sex workers today living in duality is no different than sex workers generations ago who were doing multiple things right
0: yeah exactly so it's, it's almost like kind of like let's step aside from this you know this this feminist debate. So. So tell us about the theoretical approach um, that this study took.
1: Yeah, that was this interpretive phenomenological analysis, which is really fancy, but um, it's, it's, it is this phenomenology. It's like I, I'm looking at duality as this is a social phenomenon. And the, it's both in a methodological approach and a theoretical approach. So it is that idea that you ask these open-ended questions, you do the prompts as we normally would do, um, but you support the contributor or the participant in interpreting their own behavior. So it's not they're not just telling you what happened to them or why they're doing this or whatever, but it is that they're reflecting on how that behavior um, affects or is affected by the context. Okay. Right? And then in the in the analysis bit, I was, and there were times I was warned by my committee to try not to, 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 to do this in places where it didn't fit, but because I didn't want to share the tips and strategies of people living dual lives, but I wanted to share their insights. In the analysis for IPA, I pulled out the activities from the insights so that there are times in my coding I could look for their reflection of keeping secrets and not, you know, necessarily all the strategies around um, managing information. So I share some of it, but without revealing um, the strategies that keep people safe, because that is one thing that as researchers and others who share stories and report on sex industries, um, we have to really be careful about what the impacts of what we share is going to have on the populations and because people people just trusted me in ways that you know I've been doing all kinds of different research studies over the years and this is a population that you're not going to just find right like you can find them but they'll make they're not they're hiding from you right so it's not like you know you know they're they're an easily accessible population and they have so much at stake to speak about their experiences so i just felt I had to be so careful with what they said and and share it in ways that they can't be invisibilized, but also respect the ways that they don't want to be seen.
0: Yeah. But also as well, like in a in a sort of environment where, you know, sort of like criminalization of sex work means that sex workers cannot come together and work together you know to share the information that people give you in a way that protects the sharer but also gives information useful information to the other members of that community exactly really really important you know yeah.
1: really and th- this book was primarily written for sex workers like there are lots of audiences that it would land but just it's an interpretation of the experiences that people shared and people may sex workers may take this and you know de- de- deconstruct it they may challenge some of it they may want to you know explore other parts of it but it is about just this is a another way that we can argue for rights for recognition for safety for ending criminalization that is based on only sex workers sex workers that we can see um that all of these policies and uh practices um, to police and monitor and eliminate sex industries will have huge, huge ripple effects um, on people. And yeah, it's just I'm hoping that that I introduce through the insights of these uh, contributors new ways for us to argue for fairness, for equity, um, and for sex worker in civil participation in yeah. policymaking and lawmaking and occupational health and safety standards and all of those things um,
0: yeah
1: yeah yeah because it's really difficult for people who you know halfway through part of them has access to resources and police protection and bank accounts and all this stuff and the other half of them does not like depending yeah. on which persona they're operating within um, and it, it's just they 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 embody the conflict and those those antagonisms and they find ways to reconcile um reconcile those things but it is it's it's a really challenging way to work yeah and they make no no qualms about that like it's yeah. it's a very challenging thing to maintain
0: yeah you use a phrase that I've come across before but was not entirely sure I knew what it meant until I read this book all right and I want you to explain it for the um for the listeners <laughs> it's Dolly Mop how ah. does this book explore that because I think it's quite important you know it's quite contextual to what you've just been saying
1: yeah, this is uh, the way, okay, so this is something that Bill, uh, Kate Lister talks about as well as um, Rubinald, who wrote The Five, uh, talks about this, the fact that sex workers who were with sailors or sex workers who are doing other work on the side, certain populations, ser- like servants and dressmakers and certain populations were always seen to be available for sex or may always, or or were engaging in sex industries in order to to supplement their incomes from like the sewing trades and from trades that were were underpaid. So I I share the historical context of duality just to to show that it it did exist. Um, There were, it, it existed for people who were seeing soldiers and who were, in, seen as informal prostitutes because they were dating soldiers and they were in in that vicinity and it is this way that were that you know women were yeah the way that sorry i'm 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 losing it a little bit. No, i, get, I get have it, to edit that I, out.
0: i think what you're saying and what and why i picked up the point because it resonated with something else that i'd read yeah. is that that sort of like sort of uh so women experiencing precarity and precarity is not a new thing. Okay, so women experiencing precarity have always been marginalized because of their poverty. Yeah. but then that poverty that the that, that causes the precarity that is then used to demonize them and uh, the example I was, yeah. I I knew and why I sort of like the, the connected with me with this is it's the word spinster I don't know if anyone knows this but spinster.
1: I know that one <laughs> spinster used to be
0: synonymous with the words like prostitute because if you were if you were you know engaged in you know if you're a spinster literally someone who span yeah that's yeah. precarious and seasonal work so in between time it It was assumed that you would be, you know, you know, infatuation in sexual commerce and or stealing. So it was a generally, you know, derogatory term for single poor women or marginalized women. And I think that's that's important, isn't it? Is because women have been marginalized for their poverty, yeah, and And blamed uh, for it, and blamed ways, yeah. And then when they try to tackle their poverty with whatever economic makeshift is available to them, they are condemned again, again. You know.
1: This yeah so this no double person. condemnation um yeah. but it but in what's really sickening about it is that we gendered the workplaces in ways that women wouldn't have full-time well-paid jobs right like yeah. we, we've we've created these sort of oppressions and these different ways of valuing people's work and labor and bodies in ways that certain bodies weren't valuable and certain ones are right and so it is that it's like it's like they're they're it's they're damned if they do they're damned if they don't they're damned if they innovate they're damned if they don't innovate like either like there's nothing <laughs> there's no way out
0: yeah exactly and it takes it back to that discussion about why this book isn't sort of carceral is like is opposed to radical and carceral and prohib- prohibitionist perspectives because actually this conversation we've been having about since the 1860s where you know where women who were experiencing poverty tried to address their poverty then instead of the the poverty being an issue what became the issue and you know feminists they they need to take the responsibility for this feminist uh, early feminist campaigners instead of addressing the underlying social issues that quite often they were benefiting from would address sex work rather than poverty. Yeah.
1: Well, and it's easier and it's such a deflection on how we're all complicit in creating those labor markets and those environments that allow some to thrive and some to suffer, right? Exactly. And yeah, it's just a way of, even now when you hear prohibitionists, feminists um, talking about uh, ending the sex industry, ending demand, it's like, can we deal with poverty first? <laughs> can we make sure that, you know, people who are in sex industries who really don't want to be, but are there because it's a source of income, can we deal with that first and then deal with labor rights? And like why is it the first thing that we have to do is use enforcement tactics to eliminate industries, which eliminate also sex workers in various ways. Sex workers are being eradicated and, yeah. and harmed in, in ways that we see and ways that we don't see. So, I, I you know, it is that same it's it's easier to target a population of people right so if the economy is going bad it's either immigrants or people of color or like it's you know there's always somebody to to blame and i think that um those strategies are i don't think any of it's an accident
0: no i don't think so either i don't think so and especially when there's so much money to be made out of rescue (laughs) (laughs) so Tell us about the sex industry work and square work continuum that the book discusses.
1: Yeah, sure. So that was my way of mapping the practices. So I when I when I was interviewing people, I asked them about how much work versus how much money they make versus their goals and intentions. So the continuum maps sex workers who are dabbling and supplementing the income in sex industries just a little bit or in square work, just a little bit or sex so that they have goals to exit, but they're blending sex work and square work to fund those transitions. And for people who are involved in duality in more temporary ways where they're just dealing with some emergencies or some projects, and then for people who are doing it as part of social mobility. So it was like, I, I started mapping it, but then realized how fluid and messy it all yeah. is. And the, continuum in the book isn't even the final one right like I think I added another little segment there Um, so that's the thing about I've just created a framework for us to explore duality not as like an identity like you know how people think survival sex workers are a population but it's actually a condition it's not a population this kind of thing it's that You know, these are practices at the intersection of sex work and square work. People may move about, may shift, may do a little more of this, a little less that, whatever. But there's still intention around it. There's still goals. Like people who are supplement or dabbling are are exploring a new work or a new workplace or a new industry but you know there's intention behind it so it's kind of separate than what Scambler um, 1999 wrote about in terms of bohemians or you know people who are in it to just explore sexuality because there are tons of people who do industry work to explore their sexuality but specifically duality I was focusing on people who had the underlying intention of making money And they were um, gainfully employed in both uh, sex industries and square work. But then it's not to say they weren't also doing other things like in school, on benefits. Like (laughs) there were all kinds of things that people were doing um, in addition to this. But yeah, it was just it's just a framework to sort of lay it out and see how we as um, as researchers, how experiential folks can kind of work with it. And if, if they like it, keep it. If they don't, then. You know, maybe there's a new and better way of, of um discussing that, all of those practices.
0: I like as well the way that it sort of like brings into discussion because this is this is like one of my biggest angst around people, you know, who write about sex work who's not engaged in sex work. It's almost like Um, it's almost like this sort of perception that that on on some level that sex work is something is generally anything other than survival. I had a journalist contact me a few weeks ago who wanted to talk about survival sex work. And I'm like, what do you mean by survival sex work? He's like, you know, people that need, you know, need the money to survive. Everybody needs money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. so what, are you a survival journalist? Are you being paid? Are you doing this Yeah, you're doing this to in a a journal. And it's the same, like, my experience is like, yeah, I got to explore my sexuality because I didn't want to explore my poverty.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You know, poverty is deadly. Like, you know, some some people might might want to, you know, guard against that as much as they can, but we all do. And it is that. It's to varying degrees because, You could be a a well paid middle class or higher end industry worker, but in that moment, you need to make you need to break even. And entrepreneurs understand this until you break even, your survival sorry, (laughs) but until you have your living expenses paid, your insurance, whatever it is in your life, or or for people who, hey, they need their fix because we're all functioning alcoholics and drug addicts around here anyway. Um, So until you get all of the, you know, your medicines, whatever you do in your life, all your priorities, until you get all your priorities funded, you're a survival worker. Yeah. So for a freelance journalist should understand that better than, better than anyone, I would think. Um, mm-hmm. But I, it is that. There are some populations who aren't, aren't able to ever, like, refuse clients and aren't able to ever ha- exercise choice around who they see and what they do and how they do sex work and how they do square jobs. Some populations yeah. never... They are always in, they're in a perpetual state because mm. of you know cycles of poverty and criminalization and stigma and all those things but you know the idea of engaging in in duality is to to have a bit more power and more control and you know workers in the book talk about being more selective about the, the jobs that they take and the work that they take because th- they have other sources of income yeah. and that is the ideal way to engage, not only in sex work but to engage in work is yes. to not have some you're not to be a debt slave or a, a wage slave to one entity right yes, or to exactly. one source of income
0: exactly so can you tell us how the book deals with role transition
1: uh, yeah that is something else isn't it um <laughs> <laughs> it is because you know all of us are moving in and out of roles, and that, you know, based on what we're doing and, and work and home, and we have these really integrated and segregated skills, and we're presenting in different ways depending on what we're doing. So, from student to mom or whatever, it's all different. Um, so, sex work is sex workers, who, people who do soul sex work also do this, right? They're, you know, and sometimes they have to cut off the ways that they know things, their knowledge, their skills, they have to cut off, um, they have, just have to create separations. Mm-hmm. Um, and for for people who live dual lives specifically, in order to sustain duality, you have to create the separation between your square job and your sex industry job, even if there's a more permeable um, boundary between your sex work and your personal life, for example. So some people in this, there's actually one individual in the sample who I believe... There's only one who her square employer knew about her sex work job. But most of the time, those are populations and audiences that you have to keep separate. So as you're moving in and out of roles, you, people have rituals with their, that they engage in to, to move in and out and to perform the roles in the ways that are expected so that they're not giving off or giving away any information that could out them. Yeah. The important thing here is that it's not like, it's not just that sex people are hiding sex work is like people are hiding square work from sex <laughs> industry folks too. And people are hiding, you know, information about both kinds of work from their personal networks. And like there's, there's a, there's all of this information management and selective disclosure that's happening because you know people want to have like some semblance of sanity and some peace of mind because you can't have mixed audiences all the time because you can't control who knows what about you and that's like a central important piece for people and it's not only it's
0: quite an important debate to talk about like hiding the details of your straight life your square life from from the people you know from sex working there's a massive amount of snobbery involved in sex work isn't it it was like supermodels that i get, for, i don't get out for less i bet for less than ten thousand pounds you know basically it's, yeah. like, it's that deal isn't it it's like you know and i don't think that, that that we talk about this enough is that that actually the 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 relatively you know the the relatively high wages that you can earn with sex work and i'm not saying it's easy but it can be quick um that that in itself presents problems you know why would you why would why would you go and work for a week when you can do you know give someone a blowjob and you know that's a week done you know
1: it's just why would you do that yeah, and the ways that people contain their sex work and square work or create distance, like touring, as you know, is, is really popular. And so some folks would intensely work for a weekend every six months or something like that, make the revenue, go back to their square jobs or whatever. So it is that, you know, for them, they see the insanity of, you know, the time is the most precious thing we have. Yeah, That's it for most of us. That's We yeah. don't have assets. We don't have anything. So if you're giving away 40 hours to an employer to benefit them mostly because you know it's for them it's for capitalists it's mostly about profit and underpaying workers and getting as much profit as they can Um, so why give 40 hours to that when you can invest in yourself or invest in a business venture or invest in entrepreneurialism within sex industries and make 10 times what you would make giving your labor away, right? So these folks make that rationale and it's really difficult for them sometimes to recognize, hey, I work for a month and I make what I can make in two or three days in sex industries. And that's not a modern thing. That's something that sex workers and scholars have been pointing out Gener- for generations in the 18th century, 19th century. And it's exactly. because sex working for those populations is rational. Duality is a rational response to the yeah. conditions that we've created in the labor market. And, you know, there are people in the book who want to work one job. And I came at duality with the assumption that people want non-dualism. Like I came to it with the assumption that people don't want to manage all these people and hide this phone for this and that phone for that. And oh my God, you know, like that's chaos. And that takes a lot of work to do. Some people are really good at it because they're just, that's their way of being in the world. They're just, that's what they do. They manage different segregated um, audiences and and information. That's cool. But, you know, some people just want one good paying job. Like they just want one job. And based on- what is that? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and it, it is it is an unreasonable request these days. You know, it seems like we were we've got all these delivery drivers and all the like. We're we're we have an economy where we, as consumers, we're choosing to have accounts and invest in companies that offer these fragmented, short-term, precarious jobs, and so you know we have populations of people who having one job if they it depends on their goals like if you hmm. ever want to buy a house having one job is probably not going to do it <laughs> right like you know it, it's and one of the the participants he contributors um said that like watched a block of flats go up then it went on for sale and then it, they're priced out of the market the hmm. locals are completely priced out of the market and so buying a house for that person without duality impossible
0: yeah exactly exactly it's interesting you mentioned phones then because you talk about phones in the book you and I quote
1: iPhones are a killer right can you tell us about this okay that was Rachel that said that not Raven (laughs) someone's gonna get sued if you um you know but it is that thing about there there are you know there's software out there that there that wants to integrate everything that wants to you know your browsing history your contact list, your photos like you know so if you don't do things to make sure that you're using different devices or you're avoiding certain software that has a tendency to you know want this one world and everybody knows everything and they're introducing your contacts to somebody else you know you have to really we have so little control of our social media accounts so you have to be very very careful about um what persona you're using on what device what phone number you're using on what device because one phone number can link to pictures and all kinds of stuff and link your contacts in ways that are unsafe for you and I just think that this is an argument that you know ICT folks have been talking about for for many years it is that you know, we need to have more control outside of people who live dual lives. We just need to have more control over who sees our information and how our networks are linked. But, you know, it just seems that networking is the big thing these days, but it's like not everybody wants to be part of the matrix. Sometimes we want to be outside of the web for good reasons, outside of the net for good reasons. And so these folks, um, they've developed strategies around that. But even still, like, you know, you can have an, a VPN on your browser, but that doesn't prevent information about you and your browsing becoming known, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, there's so many things that people people have to decide what they're hiding from whom and mm-hmm. how these tools are, are able and using separate devices and things are able to support that, but they're not going to be able to hide who their duality or their
0: digital footprint from from everyone yeah right. but I mean you know for, for 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 new jewelists yeah as soon as you can. <laughs> baby jewelers baby jewelers as soon as you can get yourself down to the local hock shop and buy yourself a second hand set Okay, just <laughs> yeah. do that. You will save yourself a lot of aggravation. Your 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 sexy self would not start to appear on other people's like, on oh, other
1: people people you should know. Yeah. And it's interesting cause Swarm um has a dial tool project for sex workers to provide that second phone not only for You know not necessarily for managing duality but for managing just separating church and state right That you know you have your work phone and you have your phone your personal phone and just creating that separation because it's healthy like we need digital detoxes like we we need to be able to step away from things and as industry folks like i remember talking to a web who every time there would be a a notification ding she would like have a panic like it's just you know she would have a panic attack hearing like you know, all the conversations and the notifications, at times, it's just enough. And so yeah, it's quite to have that work like, yeah, it is. And yeah. then you're always at work, which is part of the challenge with yeah. um, living a dual life, too, is that um, sometimes for some of these folks, work really never ended. They, they would bounce between different jobs, doing both jobs concurrently sometimes. <laughs> when, especially for folks who are working at home, you know, there's <laughs> one woman who said that she works in her pants and I had, to, and just, <laughs> of course you do. Like, <laughs> you know.
0: So tell us about your how the book explores hierarchies mm. and what it meant to the people you were researching.
1: Yeah, this was something that the book was not intended to, or the research wasn't intended to explore at all, Um, but it was something that came out because of the timeframe of data collection. It was during the EU referendum, and there was a lot of sentiment around um, Britishness, nationalism, Europeans in, you know, the UK workforce, the impacts that people felt that was having. And so it it was something that came through in um, some of the early interviews. And then I added it as a formal question to ask about um, impacts of Brexit, et cetera. But the population in the book are, are mostly white working class folks and white migrant workers to the UK. So the ways that they were discussing who was valued and who wasn't in the industry was based on Europeanness versus Britishness or UK ness or you know um, so that came out really really strongly and you know hierarchy is something that's been in the industry for years like we've all been talking about stratification in different ways and which populations are valued more than others but it was it was important for me to really highlight the ways that Brexit and those sentiments about anti or Europhobia and anti European sentiments affected. How sex, how it was kind of it restructured the sex industry so that, you know, the top of the hierarchy are white British. And yeah. if you were any deviation, including white migrants, then you were feeling the effects of not being seen as the most valuable population in industries. And just the interactions that people were having with, with their clients, of how the clients were proving up Britishness and how they were expected to prove up Britishness and for white migrants in the sample there's one in particular who just raged about this because you know she was told that she was the the right kind of migrant and you know those kinds of you know sentiments and it was it, it just it it's 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 interesting to just show the hierarchy the hierarchy as it was manifest for these participants but also the broader context but I didn't do too much of that I wanted to kind of stay grounded in how um, culture and how white Europeans are being constructed out of whiteness in the hierarchy and how important that is Um, but yeah it was just it was just something that was undeniable and unavoidable in as a means of shaping you know who was seen as valuable and who and who wasn't and Mm. You know, and it shouldn't be a surprise <clears throat> that these things manifest within the sex industry because it, it's doing this was a way of showing that sex workers are part of our society. Sex mm. workers, there are some sex workers in the book who wanted Europeans out of the industry potentially because, you know, it might affect the pricing. Maybe the pricing will go up and there are yeah. people, you know, who they're, they're all across the political spectrum and they're embedded and affected and part of shaping our society and our you know values and so seeing the reflection of our societal values around race um among a sample of white pot of white sex workers I thought was very intriguing
0: yeah Um, and I think that's an important discussion that we need to have as well because like we can't dismantle the house using the master's tools yeah so we're not going to affect change if we...
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you <Audrey>. uh, <laughs> um but we, we we've got to be self-critical yeah we've got to be self-critical because when i was doing my my uh research with people at webcams, their assumptions about eastern european cameras was that they were all been horribly exploited in in um in studios, right. and this is this is said from people who've never been to Romania, so they don't actually realise that. Actually, you know, most people live in extended families. Really hard to webcam with your gran in the next room. Like, <laughs> you need to go somewhere to do it. it. Doesn't necessarily mean you're being exploited. I'm not saying that explo- exploitation doesn't happen, and any capitalist setup is going to happen, but. You know, there's this assumption that, you know, we can't other each other by assuming victimisation of of each other, but also as well, we can't buy into the hierarchy, like, you know, like the hierarchy that's all the positions that web cameras at the top and street workers at the bottom, because actually... Inadvertently, then we reflect the, the the aspirations of the oppressor. Yeah. Of course, yeah, in in a neoliberal society, of course, webcam is going to be at the top of the tree. Because you know what? Every single transaction goes for the banking system. So yeah,
1: <laughs> good horse. <laughs> because you're paying yeah. man. And, and yeah, we we have to try because there is a lot of lateral oppression that happens in, in sex industries and every other industry. And But we do have to try to stop reinforcing those values, but it doesn't stop and it doesn't start in the industry. It starts in society because we value people based on a lot of things, including race, gender, all of that stuff. Like there are human, there are hierarchies within marketplaces, within workforces. And for us, we need to not deny that. And then it starts there because Mm. then microcosms like Sex industries and other industries—they they do mirror, reflect back, recreate, and shoot back at us yeah. what we produced here. So, you know, valuing the bodies that are valued in sex industries are the same ones that are valued in movies, and the same yeah. ones that are valued in magazines, and the same—you know—the same people who you know would fall would probably receive protection in terms of like the ideal victim. Like they're, they're the same populations, and the people who are doing quite well in mainstream societies or the same people are doing well in sex industries like it's you know it's kind of like the same thing so I think that we have to the hierarchy reflects back our social economic and political hierarchies that exist yeah. in mainstream societies and we have to be honest about that and yeah dismantle that using whatever tools but hopefully from the inside out so
0: I only a few more questions left so the violence of exclusion tell me about that
1: yeah. And I think we, we kind of started talking about that where it is that, you know, sex working populations are not necessarily included in, you know, policy initiatives or strategies that are supposed to improve safety, improve rights uh, for, for populations. They're, they're, it, the tendency is to talk about sex workers and not with them. Exactly. And we see we see that for generations and generations, and many of us have been working on sex worker inclusion for generations as well. And so, it's really important that we hear from diverse populations of sex workers when we're crafting anything. And we, the royal we, is in policymakers and people with power to to craft things, um, because we're we're going to we're going to create unintended consequences. We're going to miss people that should be at the table you know, and that we're going to impact populations that that will will never see, know or understand until it's too late. And so part of that is just an ethical practice of inclusion, because, you know, there, I don't see, well, there has been a lot of exclusion of most relevant populations. But usually in the modern day, we challenge when people are excluded, like we challenge if there's a a, a charity that's run for people of color where there's no people of color in it. Like yeah, we yeah. challenge, we challenge that kind of thing. So we need to also challenge that when it comes to sex work issues, when it comes to understanding the phenomenon, when it comes to understanding harm and violence as defined by the population. Because we're not, we shouldn't be out on a crusade to eliminate um, violence within industries as we interpret it. We should be out to remedy it and find remedy for the ways that sex workers interpret and label and define violence. Otherwise we're creating, perpetuating harms against them. So, you know, I think that, yeah, like we have to do that in every way possible. And for me, as because I'm in the position of power as I am in the organization that I run, I have to make sure that sex workers are active and former sex workers are on staff, are in operations. Those are the people you see. Those are the people who are doing research into their communities. Those are the people who are invested in to, you know, partner to, Lead the agenda around safety and rights because this is their issue. (laughs) For active sex workers, this issue is not belong to researchers or policymakers or nobody else. This is sex workers' fight. And so, you know, either support come when you're called on, or get out of the way. Yeah, because lives are at stake here for people. So for me, this this exclusion it it reminds me of you know like just ways that we dehumanize and silence populations that we choose not to bother to hear from that are not worthy of having a seat at the table and it's like you know in the most part sex workers built the damn table (laughs) so what are you talking about of course they should be there there and so this book is is drawing it back like it's, it's focusing on the population but really I'm talking about the rest of us yeah and so making sure that you know, we're very inclusive and very clear about why we're implementing the strategies that we do and how that is supposed to have a material or a benefit to sex workers in terms of their priorities. And anyone who can't explain that, whether you're a researcher or a practitioner or a policymaker or a politician, if you can't explain how sex workers benefit from what you're doing, then, you know, you got to kind of, stop and I think take yeah. a breath and, and, and speak to the community and realize and make sure that you're working in their interests, otherwise go work on something else.
0: Yeah, I, you know, and it's, it's funny because that, that's raised throughout the book, but also it, it sort of like harkens back to revolting prostitutes by uh, Smith and Mack. And they talk about, yes. you know, like activists who take on the voice of, of sex workers because, because they've become so involved with activism. You know, before this, this meeting with you today, I've just been to a meeting, 17 people about sex workers the only sex worker who's there with me i'm not a current sex worker and i'm not there as a sex worker i'm there as a researcher so if i didn't happen to be there it would be a group of people doing something for the the people that they think they're helping but actually you're all sat there earning a wage on the back of other women of women that you are helping I yeah. can't see but I'm doing rabbit ears here
1: Yeah, she's so, doing rabbit, but, but also that thing like in a technological age we have opportunities to creatively include people without outing them exactly. and I think that we need to investigate those modalities investigate those opportunities to do that because exactly. we can hear from people um, in ways that are safe for them mm. and there's no excuse not to exactly so
0: final question what's next for you
1: Oh God. <laughs> well, there, you know, wow. Um, sleep. Um, no, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a couple of things we'll in the cooker. Dead. Say again.
0: We'll sleep when we're dead.
1: Uh, you're supposed to sleep now. I watched this Ted talk about sleep and how we're shortening our lives if we don't. Um, but yes, what's next for me right now is to, to pivot and focus on numb. So I have to focus on making sure that NUM has the resources that it needs to operate because we're doing, very important work around providing support to um, individuals who are harmed uh, from industry. So we are short of the mark in terms of diversity, in terms of uh, reaching into communities who um, are more marginalized. And so, you know, we have a lot to do to uh, have the N, capital N, national, as pronounced as it should be in NUM. We have, we're missing people in terms of the digital divide. There are people who are still suffering from COVID and the impacts of COVID. COVID's not over for these populations and the impact is long, long lasting. So I'm going to focus in on and working with people who are investing in the safety agenda that we have around sex workers um, to build numb to what it should be because, you know, um. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of need for the organization and I think that we're, we're, we're doing okay, but we're missing the mark in terms of really being of value to uh, a, quite a, con- a large contingent of the population in sex industry. So I want to make sure that we're accountable and valuable to populations and then all of the advocacy that has to come around that to prevent harm and to you know educate and to influence policy and all of that needs to happen. So I want to focus on that. But I'm open to opportunities for research as always, um, but not for research's sake. Um, I think that if sex workers were interested in exploring duality a bit more, um, I I would be game for that. Um, But I definitely want to participate in research that's driven by the population from the priorities that they are identifying. Um, yeah, so a little sleep and a lot more work is next.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Anyone listening, NUM is the National Ugly Monks, which is, you know, the foundation which Raven is the CEO of. So, Raven, this is the chance for like shameless self, self-promotion and plugging of said book. What's the book called? Who's publishing it? And who are you?
1: <laughs> Excellent. The book is called Work, Money and Duality, Trading Sex as a Side Hustle, published by Policy Press. And my name is Dr. Raven Bowen.
0: And my name is Rachel Stewart. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent, and this is the new book network, the Sex, Sex, Sex Work and Sexualities channel. Thank you very much. <laughs>